Hello, and welcome to the Ink to Film podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm Luke. And I'm James. And this week we cover Ridley Scott's 1982 sci fi noir film, Blade Runner. Now let's go watch sea beams glitter in the dark. Blade Runner 1982, one of my favorite films. I'm so happy we finally covered it. So what did you think, Luke? I'm, I really enjoyed this movie. I think it's beautiful, heart, not, not breaking, but just like really plays at the heartstrings. I, I don't know. It's really, it was a cool movie. I'm glad we watched it. Yeah, I'm glad you enjoyed it because honestly, it's one of those movies that sometimes requires like repeated viewings to really get it all. And I'm sure you'll watch it again eventually, but uh, oh my gosh, I love it so much. Basically, uh, what we're going to do here structure-wise is uh, we're kind of just going to recap the film, go through it a little bit, talk about what we thought in each scene, and um, at the very end, stick around after the after our outro music because we're going to be addressing these three short films that came out on, you can watch them on YouTube, uh, they came out in anticipation of Blade Runner 2049, which is coming out October 6th, I believe, So, and we're going to cover that as well next week. Yeah, I mean, those those short films are really interesting. I definitely have some thoughts, but I want to give people the opportunity to just have this episode be about the, the 80s movie. So I, I, that's why I, I think put it after the music. And, you know, if you want to stick around and listen to that, you can. You're welcome to. This this will still be a self-contained episode. Yeah, I think it was required because, honestly, this, is, this movie is dense. This movie has a lot to talk. We have so much to talk about. Right. Uh, yep, I have a lot of observations. I'm I'm eager to get into it. So uh, we'll be doing non-spoiler and then spoiler. Even though it's been out for a little while, I figure we should just give people the opportunity to just hear our thoughts on the movie, and then going going forward, they can hear spoilers if they've seen the film. Oh, I did want to say um, I only I only watched this movie the one time. The reason being, I want to provide kind of a noob, quote unquote, perspective. I didn't want to do all the research that I could have done because there's so much out there on the internet I could have read, and this way I'm I'm kind of new to the project other than the fact that I've read the book um, and some of our listeners will probably be in the same boat as me. And then maybe, you know, whereas I know you're a lot more familiar with this and you have been for a long time. I've seen the movie countless times, but there were things that I definitely needed to refresh myself on. And now that I've seen it, I mean, I've, this week I watched it some at least three or four times. And uh, so I guess we'll just jump right into my first question I wanted to ask you just to, just to start us off is, I know you said you saw it when you were younger. I don't remember. I don't know how much you remember. Was it was the film what you were expecting having read the book? Honestly, I thought everyone told me how different the book was than the uh, than the movie, and I was going in expecting it to be almost unrecognizable. And I was actually kind of surprised at how much I felt like I got from the book. Like the experience of reading the novel added a lot to to my viewing experience, um, which is really cool. A surprisingly cool thing. All, all the book stuff really added a lot to it for me. I think I'm really glad to have read this book now because. Like you say, like it, it adds that extra layer and there's points in the film where like I may not necessarily thought they were weaker parts, but there were parts that I didn't necessarily completely connect with. And now that I've read it, I, I know the perspective of like the source material. And I think that adds a lot. What were your overall thoughts on the movie? Would you recommend it to somebody? Yeah, I, I it's interesting because I've 
I combed Twitter some for our uh, our Ink to Film Twitter account, and just seeing like what people are talking about with regards to the projects we work on, and I there seems to be a like a stark divide of people who've actually seen the movie between people who love it, think it's a masterpiece, and people who are just kind of like eh, and got found and got a little bit bored by it found maybe that it dragged at times. And then I, I guess there's a third group, and that's the people who were in one camp and then have moved to the other. Because I see people who are like, oh, I found it so bored the first time I watched it, and then I watched it a second time, and I fell in love with it. And now I've watched it, like, so many times since. Yeah, I, that's definitely something that I've encountered. It's a very atmospheric movie. It's a very uh, slow to develop. A lot of just, like, letting you explore this world with long shots and silences and music and you know atmosphere like i said and because of that if you're not enchanted by it i can see it maybe being a bit boring and i wonder i wonder how much that'll be a thing in the new one because from all accounts it looks gorgeous much like this movie does which is what i guess that's one of my big over general overall things this movie looks fantastic and i got like i guess they have like a new version with the hd remaster and man it looks great the colors just popping out of the screen, um, the interplay of light and dark, the way Ridley Scott sets up these scenes and lets them lets them linger, like shots linger. It's a uh, yeah, a beautiful film. I agree, almost on all counts. I was gonna say I've encountered people saying that they they didn't enjoy the movie and then and then switching over you're definitely making a good point there because i think it has something to do with the fact that this movie is like a slow burn, very reminiscent of 1940s film noir. It's something that you have to like give yourself over to and experience as because it is it's a detective noir um, while also being a sci-fi film so you kind of just have to give yourself over to the investigation and kind of go along with the character and then along the way we see the the usual signs of a film noir as in femme fatale and the high contrast like you're talking about the lighting of the light and dark uh, playing off each other really well and you were talking about how well this movie shot it's unbelievable what they were able to do with this film 1982 they were like yeah i'm sure you noticed way more than i did they were i mean they were they set the standard like i mean star wars came out and it they did a lot of model work and that kind of thing but this carried that on the mixture of practical effects and and whatever special effects they were able to develop at that time it's just unbelievable i thought the special effects held up like a champ i mean there's a few times where i could tell it was a model but it, i didn't feel like that really detracted too much from it and some of that stuff like the um the effect they use when they have their hover car lift off, I think that still looks fantastic and super convincing. Me too. There's one specific effect that I want to mention in in the actual spoilers that I think is amazing that we'll, that I'll come back to. But something that I found online was that this this film, as well as um, a novel that I'm not sure the title of, are kind of the the beginning of cyberpunk as like this genre of its own. Ah, yeah, I think you're talking about Neuromancer. Yeah, Neuromancer, that's what it is. Which, by the way, that is supposedly being developed into a movie. I hope it is anywhere as good as Blade Runner. That'd be amazing. Yeah, be cool to cover that one day, maybe. The cyberpunk is like the blending of like high high tech and then like low... Low life. Low life, yeah. That's what the typical phrase is, is high, mm-hmm. high tech, low life. And, and I think that that blend is so interesting. And there's so many genre melding things going on in this film. And for Ridley yeah. to take it in this direction, whereas I feel in the novel, there was, there was much less of it. it. I mean, it's not because a book isn't necessarily a visual medium. It's more, you know, imaginary. Putting yourself in that situation, uh, the book seemed to be more 
fallout e like more wasteland more there's dust in the air there's there's all these things that have come to a point where it's like almost unlivable and then we jump into the film which i feel has just like a totally different aesthetic for the most part other than other than the tech high technology and i think that was such a smart choice by ridley scott yeah i mean this is a around a time it's almost a response to star trek films in a way because this is a world where technology hasn't elevated humanity in fact humanity is just as fucked up as ever you know what i mean like it's the idea that like star wars and this set forward where it's like yeah everything's high tech but it's also dirty and used mm -hmm. and grimy and it's not like star trek where it's all clean and everything's mm -hmm. perfect and everything looks great it's just like everything's been worn down and used and i think that adds a lot to the world and it's a, it's a i feel like it's a, an aesthetic that ridley scott used an alien he, he's continued to use that, I think, in a lot of his films. It's affected all of sci-fi movies, right? Because it became, it was so iconic and memorable that a lot of people are going to crib that same style, I think. Yeah, agreed. And speaking of iconic and memorable, Vangelis' score in this film is one of the most recognizable scores that has ever existed. I was I was actually like watching some analysis videos and people talking about because I mean I like I enjoy scores and I like th what they bring to a film but I'm no in no way an expert and just mm -hmm. hearing other people talk about like how masterful Vangelis was in this with this score and and like having them articulate kind of all I, I don't know how much you looked into it but people talk about how Vangelis's score and the sound design never end like one blends into the other without mm -hmm. there ever being a definite end or beginning to any of the music or the sounds of the universe and everything. There is one moment that detracted from the score for me that I want to bring up later, but it might be, I guess it might be kind of a spoiler thing, so we can wait for that section. Um, but in general, I agree. Absolutely loved it. I did want to, I don't know if you saw this, um, did you see anything about the title Blade Runner and where Ridley Scott got that? I, I think I did see it, but I, I didn't write it down or anything. Go ahead and tell me. Yeah, so he didn't want to call the movie Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep because it was a mouthful. And he had seen, I guess he had previously seen this novel called The Blade Runner that was going to be adapted into a movie, but then was like never adapted. It was just sitting there. And so he bought the rights to the movie just so that he could use the name because he loved it so much. And it has nothing to do with anything that happens in this novel. He just thought it was a cool name. That's a slam dunk, man. And then he decided to name the um, Bounty Hunters, I guess, Blade Runners, and then there you go. That's such a cool name. <laughs> well, really, Scott agrees. <laughs> He's willing to buy movie rights just so he can use the name. All right, so I think it's probably about time that we jump into spoilers, so we just start running through the scenes and everything. So right off the bat, we get a cityscape, Los Angeles in 2019. I mean, this shot is just like all of the atmosphere that you need to know the world that we're in. It's, it establishes things aren't going to be clean, like we were talking about before. Things are going to be dirty. Things are used, and the earth has been used up. And there's just flames erupting into the sky at night, which is a really amazing look. And yeah, like you said, tone setter. You know what you're getting based on that one shot, and then the following shot, which is a which is a super extreme close up of an eye with flames in it, and then the score. And all of that just starts out within the first 10, 15 seconds. You know where you're at. Yeah, that eye is interesting. I, I want to come back to that as something I, I was picking up on which is a continuation of symbolism from the book, 
That was a lot of like eye symbolism, which I thought was a through line throughout this movie. There's so much that has to do with eyes. And, and I, I kind of want to get your take on, on what that means. Anyway, so just to get through this part here, um, we're flying through the city and we come up to this pretty large pyramid looking building. So we zoom into this this pyramid as we as we get closer and closer, we go in through the window and we see a blade runner named Holden who is conducting a Voight comp test on yeah. Leon Kowalski. Very similar to the to the ones they do in the novel. Yeah, and so I think this is a scene that we didn't get in the novel, right? This is this is basically the same thing as as the Blade Runner before Deckard that that got shot and that wasn't that didn't take place in the book, but they talked about it. So we're getting to actually see that scene here. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's it's I mean, right away we see the technology, the practical mm-hmm. props that they're using blend of old and new yeah we see the the void comp tests uh also I, I i should point out that um the rosen corporation has been renamed as the tyrell corporation exactly yeah so holden is administering this test to leon kowalski and um it's fairly similar to what happens in the book basically he's uh registering emotional responses to the questions that he's asking so holden asks mm-hmm. i believe the first question he asks is about Basically, it's there's a tortoise in the desert with its on its back on its shell. Do you flip it over or not? And and Kowalski has a lot of questions for this. He doesn't really understand why he's answering these questions, and and he seems to be more and more resistant to it. A lot of the questions were really similar, if not identical, to the ones in the novel. Yeah, which I thought was cool. Speaking yeah. of uh, the novel in relation to the film, uh, I did read that before production, Ridley Scott had never read the novel. What? No, wow, that's wild. That blows my mind because that means that he it was going based off of just the screenplay and then whatever he changed in the screenplay to mm. to be his own film. Yeah, so there was actually a bit of a um not I don't want to call it a scandal, but there was something that happened with the writers. The original uh writer of the screenplay was Hampton Fancher and then uh Early in the process, Ridley really uh, kind of relieved him of his duties and like didn't want him to be the final writer. He wanted another screenwriter to come on just based on, I guess they weren't working well together. But Mm -hmm. he wrote the original screenplay. Creative differences. Exactly. So he wrote the original screenplay and then he brought in David Webb Peoples, who ended up punching it up and working with with Ridley in order to get the final product that we saw on screen. Oh, which we we should go ahead and talk about the different versions, right? In which version we're because we're covering the final cut. At least that's the one I watched. Yeah, that's true. We should definitely cover the the different versions. So I haven't seen every version. You've just seen this one, correct? Yeah. So I've only seen the theatrical cut, the director's cut, and the final cut. And I believe there's like five other versions, which are work prints and and some other different ver- like t- theatric or t- i'm sorry tv versions that they would show on tv hmm. uh basically the big differences are in the theatrical cut this will be interesting now that you've seen the film uh in the theatrical cut um there's a voiceover throughout which is a very noir-esque thing to have going on so i feel like and it was it was the studio wanted it and bridley and harrison ford did not want there to be a voiceover does it is it what does the voiceover say it so the reason that they didn't want there to be voiceover because they wanted to be more show instead of tell right which is Is a lot of harrison ford's inner monologue or is it a like narrator yeah it's you know it's harrison ford and he's narrating the film so he's basically just telling if if there's something confusing going on uh like the scene we'll get to in a second i'll explain more uh he would 
go out of his way to tell people what was going on basically and it, it some people enjoy it i think that it leaves less to mystery and kind of your own interpretation and i prefer this the ridley scott's version yeah it's there is a joy to using contextual clues in this world that they've created to figure out what's going on in the scene what it all means what this world is like i can see i think i would fall in the camp of someone who would be annoyed to get oh like too much of that at least a little bit here and there can can be like a certain stylistic flair but i think overall i'm glad it's not in there i think it's it's much better without i've seen that that version and it just like i said it doesn't leave as much to mystery and it's very it's safe which is isn't something you want to see in a blade runner film Mm. so uh speaking of safe they in the theatrical cut they have a more happy ending should we save the alternate endings for when we get to the ending Let's do that. Let's bring up all let's when we get to the end we can talk about different versions while we're while we're kind of talking about what happens. I would just mention here as far as the other other versions are concerned, uh Ridley Scott, although it's called the director's cut, the second cut that I've seen is called the director's cut. Ridley Scott didn't mm-hmm. oversee that cut. They used uh his notes and they had someone else come in to kind of cut together things that he wanted rather than having what the studio wanted. And so they cut together the, the mm-hmm. film on his own and Ridley came out and said that he wasn't really happy with the the editing and some of the other things that, that were, it just wasn't his final vision. And then so mm-hmm. cut to 2007 and we see his final version, which is the final cut that we, that we watched. So the Blade Runner Holden is, is administering the Voight-Kampf test to Leon Kowalski. And as he asks more questions, he asks the tortoise question. And then he asks another question, a follow-up about um, the happy things that he remembers about his mother. And, throughout this whole process of being questioned, uh, Kowalski starts to become more agitated and you kind of get the sense early, like that, like something weird is going on. As he asks about his mother, he, Kowalski shoots Holden from under the table like two or three times. And we come to find out in the next scene, next couple scenes that he didn't actually pass away, but he was shot multiple times. And this guy is obviously yeah. a replicant. Just like the book. Holden's in the hospital and in kind of critical condition. So we cut to a cityscape shot and we see technology and all of the different like ads that are shown up on the screen. And we see a blimp for the off world advertising the off world flying around. And I mean, it's just another shot where it's just establishing where we are. And I think these establishing shots and a lot of these like long takes where we just see the city is, is part of what makes me always want to go back to Blade Runner because I feel like I can't get enough of it. Well, and you probably can find details that you overlooked in previous viewings. And I, I noticed there was a strong Asian influence to the technology and to the, a lot of the like signage and stuff. And I'm wondering if that is some sort of commentary about globalization and maybe in the future, all these different cultures are starting to come together more and overlapping. I think that's very interesting that you say that because... Um, because this was the final cut, we didn't have the narration in the narration version of the film, which is the theatrical cut. Um, Deckard talks about the language that people are speaking in the streets, and it's actually called city speak. And basically it's a blending of many different, of Spanish, Japanese, French, like many different language, languages all threaded together. So it's, it Hmm. goes along with that point that you were making of, it's just the amalgamation of all these nations coming together and 
I think it has something to do with the off-world being like the place that you want to be, and this place is kind of left behind. So everybody just comes together. We push in lower towards this uh, city street view, and we get to see actual LA in 2019. And it's a blend of many different cultures and technology, like you're saying, a lot of neon, a lot of raining, dirtiness. It's, at, it's atmosphere, right? That with the score, you're, you're being introduced to what this world is like, um, which is something I noticed too. I think this, in a reversal of what you expect typically, or what I would expect typically, this movie does a lot more world building than I thought the novel did. The novel, I always felt like, was suggestive of, of the way the world is. Um, we get some TV personalities described and things like that, and, and, and a little bit of a description of this abandoned apartment and all that stuff, which does show up in the movie. But in general, when, when you talk world building, this movie has a ton of it. And really, I'm left with a much clearer view of what the world is like in Blade Runner than I am in uh, Philip K. Dick's novel. So... We get Deckard on the street and we're um, on that street with all the neon signs and the raining. And he uh, goes up to this shop and orders some Asian cuisine of some kind. Mm -hmm. And um, these characters come up behind him and they tap him on the shoulder and he can't understand them because they're speaking in city speak, which is that amalgamation of all the different languages. And Deckard has to pull pull over the shop owner to ask what he's what he's saying. And they're saying you're under arrest and we come to find out that they're arresting him under some guy, some guy named Bryant's orders. Well, which is another throwback to the novel. Harry Bryant was his uh, superior. I, I want to say, too, Harrison Ford is at, like, the height of his powers here. He His charisma leaps off the screen. I don't know that we have a modern actor. We probably do, but, yeah, like I said, charismatic. And, and this this is a great example of that. This opening scene, you just... He doesn't even have to say anything. You just like him. And that's um, there's like a magnetism to him that is uh, really, really works in a leading role. Yeah, he's so cool. Do you think Ryan Gosling is going to be able to hold up the kind of Blade Runner title and be like a likable badass like like Deckard is? You know, I kind I kind of do think he will. I, re- I have a lot of respect for Ryan Gosling, um, especially with what he's been doing recently. Some of his more recent films. Um and yeah, I expect him to do well. I I, I will I'll withhold judgment to like actually see the movie. Yeah, I think he's going to do a great job. I, I think he is like kind of, I don't think he's on that same level of Harrison Ford, but I think he definitely has that with just, just watching Drive, like kind of that like yeah more more quiet badass role. Kind of getting back to like Harrison Ford being a badass. They say you're under arrest. He finds out he's under arrest and he tells the shopkeeper, tell him I'm busy, I'm eating right now. They They take him away. He decides to go with them. And um, this is the first time we get to see a spanner up close. Um, and it's just like unbelievable, man. Like that was like such a cool thing to have thought up in like 1982. Like that was like, yeah, we got like, oh, it's a flying car in the in the book, you know. But in this, they had to like mm-hmm. actually visually make it. And it was like a physical prop. Yeah. And it's amazing. So they fly off to the police station and Deckard walks into Bryant's office. And Bryant says, Deckard, uh, like Deckard kind of gives him a look and Bryant's like, you wouldn't have come if I, if I just asked you to. So we had to like arrest you to bring you here. So that's a change from, from the book. And he's in, in the movie, he's already kind of retired or has quit. Um, and he previously was this Blade Runner or Bounty Hunter. And now they're kind of bringing him back in for one more job, um, which is, seems like kind of a noir thing, but 
it's different because in the book he he was an active bounty hunter um kind of uh subordinate to holden um which is i don't know what do you think of that change which do you think works better I think I think I like the film version. It just adds that extra layer. Of, they're like basically they imply throughout the scene, they're like, they're gonna give him a job. They're gonna say, hey, four replicants are out there. We need you to go find them. And then he's like, do I have a choice? And they're like, no, because basically the dirty cop of this noir comes in, is implying that if he doesn't do the job, then something bad's gonna happen to him, whether he's framed for something or threatened in some way. Him being off the job already also shows that he isn't completely on board with the job and what it entails, and it already introduces that idea that maybe maybe he's not completely liking the things he has to do for this job. Yeah, or it sets up early, and since we don't have that inner monologue that we would get in the, in the novel, we, we get to see that he's like resistant of it at the get-go, which is already building up to him. You know, did you notice that Bryant uh, pours himself a Johnny Walker Black out of this like odd-looking Johnny Walker Black label bottle? Since we mentioned it, it was it was uh, something that I noticed a lot in this film. Yeah, they uh, they and they're making. I mentioned this in the last episode. They're making a a, a new version of this, and I was surprised because I thought the bottle design was something new. I guess I should have expected it, but it was it, the bottle design is very similar to what was in this film, and it's got this kind of like kind of wide bottom and it. Uh, almost like a barbell shape to the bottle. Yeah, kind of weird, but definitely kind of futuristic. And man, I would love to have one of those bottles. I need to find one bad. Yeah, if you guys can, if anybody knows any representatives for Johnny Walker, can you get them to send a bottle our way? <laughs> yeah, that would be that would be something. <laughs> so we're in deck, or we're in Bryant's office, and like I was saying, he he calls these replicants that have that have kind of escaped onto Earth. Uh, skin jobs and i thought that was like a it sounds super offensive and like we're not even Mm. in that world well it also kind of tells you what they are right that they're that they are androids but they have skin and they are in an insulting way but he is saying that they look they look like us so he calls them he tells decker that he has these four skin jobs that are on the loose um basically he explains that there are these replicants that made their way to earth on a shuttle and the police found the shuttle nearby it also go back to that skin job it also implies that there might have been versions that didn't have skin previously terminators is what (laughs) yeah i wonder if we'll see some some uh, skinless replicants maybe in the future 2049 that'd be cool so while they're in the office uh something that's going to be a through line that i'll just mention now is as deckard is talking to bryant the character that that picked him up from from the the noodle shop the other police officer picks up a little wrapper and starts folding it he makes some sort of little animal yeah he ends up he ends up folding it up into like a little origami chicken and that's just something throughout the film that's going to keep happening so i just figured i'd mention here and we'll talk about that more later so bryant shows deckard the footage of the void comp that holden conducted and where holden was shot bryant tells deckard that there were there were six replicants but two of them were killed because they were trying to break into the tyrell corporation uh, they killed these replicants killed 23 people before escaping to earth holden was there giving the test to see if any of the new employees were replicants trying to sneak in and uh like get close to the tyrell corporation and leon kowalski uh ended up being that that person who was that replicant who was who was in the system and trying to like sneak his way in there and then he introduces the other three replicants after that there's zora pris and roy batty and he kind of talks about how Roy Batty is probably the leader. Yeah, that's another thing from the novel. So uh, Bryant tells Deckard that he should go to the Tyrell Corporation and see if the Void Comp 
test works on a Nexus 6 that they have there. So all of these all of these replicants are are the Nexus 6 model, which is like the most advanced model that they've made up to this point. You could probably imagine I was sitting there going like, this is just like the novel. Like all this stuff really lines up. I was amazed. Yeah, it, it most of the story is like fairly simple and like straightforward for the most part. And I would say very close to the novel, which is why I think it's weird mm-hmm. that Ridley hasn't read the no- hadn't read the novel up to that point. Yeah, I guess as long as the screenwriters did, that's that's where it comes from. Yeah, we get to one of my favorite shots. Deckard arrives at the Tyrell Corp, and they lay on the spanner, and then he's waiting in this like giant room with this like orange glowing sun. Yeah, I was struck very much with. I mean, it's a pyramid, right? So I you immediately think of Egypt, and I I think of the ruling class, and I think of them living in their like above it all in this kind of tower. And yeah, it was very, very theological and very almost celestial beings, right? Like, or at least they're comporting themselves that way. Yeah, there's a lot of that, I would say. There's there's just the the juxtaposition of the two classes, for sure. Yeah, that when, and then you look at the street level, where it's all, you know, dingy and dark, and it's it's really quite a dramatic difference. There's an owl that flies through when Deckard's in there, and he right, this woman shows up, and she's, she, Deckard asks if it's real, and if and Rachel asks if he likes it and he's like yeah it looks expensive and that's very much most of this scene plays out as it did in the in the novel yeah it's Rachel it's his Rachel uh Tyrell I guess instead of Rachel Rosen <laughs> yep um I was immediately I, I started picking up on these reflective eyes because they show that in the owl right and they show that with her when she's doing the test and my as soon as I saw that I'm like why do they need to do a test when you can just look at them and see they have like reflective irises or whatever and go oh there's a replicant it's interesting because, like, I I think symbolically it's 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 uh, it's saying something, but just from like the logistics of the scene, it seems like all these tests are unnecessary when you could just look at someone's eyes and tell that they're a replicant. Yeah, I agree. That it's it's definitely something in the film that that there's that argument where it's like, well, why didn't they just tell that they had these reflective eyes? Uh, first, I want to address this is one of this is the special effect that I was talking about earlier that I think it's like it's done practically and I think it's amazing. Um, I'll just explain how they do it really quickly. They they take a two-way mirror and they shoot a light, a colored light at it. And since it's sitting kind of at an angle to the camera, it's you can't see the mirror, obviously, because it's like a two-way mirror. And the reflection hits the actor in the eyes and it creates whatever color they shoot at the eye. And that pupil becomes like that yellowish color. And I think that's... Wow, that's really cool. I thought that was amazing. I thought they were wearing contacts. Yeah, no, they're that's all light. Like they just shoot lights off their eyes, and I think it's like when they that's they cool. do it to the owl later, and that looks amazing. And they, I mean, I just think that's such a cool effect. As Rachel and Deckard are talking, Doctor Eldon Tyrell joins them, and he starts asking if it's going to be a Voight comp test, and if it's going to be an empathy test, and if all these things. And he kind of seems to be well informed about it, and he as they're talking back and forth, he's like, I want to see a negative before I see a positive. So I want you to test Rachel. And that's very similar to the book. Um, a lot of this plays out like that. I, I was struck by, again, he's wearing these huge glasses and they have like different sections of them with like different magnifications. It looked like, and that, I mean, I didn't think about it at the time other than just noting it, but throughout we keep focusing on people's eyes and their, you know, people wearing eye patches, people, you know, losing their eyes, stuff like that. And we talked about this in the novel where that character, I think his name was Hannibal, had uh, glasses that kept getting cloudier and cloudier with dust. And we thought that that maybe was like a symbol for him losing touch and losing his sight of 
the world around him. And I thought it was interesting that if you if you extrapolate out from that, Elden has these like big magnifying glass commanding thing on his face where it's like this is his vision of the world and he sees things clearly and he maybe even too clearly and i don't know like clearly but also it's through a filter so his vision is i think very important because i think later a lot of what goes on with him and roy is about the way eldon views roy and the way roy views himself yeah this this i thing is definitely a carryover from the novel and I would argue that they kind of did it more, I guess they had more of a, an opportunity because like I said before, it's visual, but they did, they really keyed into it on the film. There's, there's so many instances with the reflective eyes, with the, like you're, there's, there's other instances that we'll hit on as we go. Deckard is administering the void comp tests to Rachel and just asking quite like kind of shocking questions about like, a lot of these are, are right from the book, right? Okay. He asked about the calfskin wallet in particular. I noticed like there's a lot of them are the same. So what they're trying to do is get an emotional reaction within the pupil dilation or something like that, or some sort of flush. He's administering the task and, it, and it tests and it takes a long time. At the end, Deckard realizes that, that Rachel is a replicant, doesn't say anything about it. And Tyrell asks Rachel to leave the room. And af after she leaves the room, Deckard is like, does she know? Why doesn't she know that she's a replicant? And Tyrell says that this is an experiment that he's been doing because, um, the replicants don't last very long. And so they have issues with memory sometimes and, and the kinds of things that they, they kind of start developing their own memories, but they're like fragmented. So what they what he's done is given her false memories. So after the void comp test and talking about how Rachel was was uh, actually a, a replicant, Deckard leaves and he goes to Kowalski's like apartment, and he's going through. And this is another kind of detective noir type situation. He's going right. he's going around. He's looking for clues. He's finding different things, putting putting pieces together, and he finds um, dark fluid in the bathtub and then like some sort of flake or scale and he puts it in a little Ziploc baggie and that'll come back later. And right. while he's doing all of this investigating Gaff, the, the police officer that originally brought him from the noodle shop, he's been, he's been flying him around from place to place in the spanner, which is the flying car. And while during this, he again is like crafting some sort of origami type thing and he broke up a match and it, it kind of looked like a little man. Deckard then digs through some drawers and he finds some photos in Kowalski's place. So these little origami things this guy's making, the little matchstick man, and it's interesting because I don't really know what to make of it, but I feel like there's a lot, there's something there. And I guess if I were to take a stab at it, it's just the nature, like it's maybe the human nature to create these like facsimiles of real, real beings. And him doing him creating these little paper animals is similar on a, like a very small scale to what Tyrell is doing when he's creating these replicants. I like that. That's cool, Luke. I, I hadn't even thought about that. Like that's I hadn't even thought about the fact that he was like crafting something artistic because of what initial like what happens eventually. What this leads to is kind of the thing that's always overshadowed. I've never really thought about the actual act of making them, which is really cool. So from this scene, we, we cut to an interior of a phone, a phone booth of some sort, a futuristic looking phone booth. And we see a clenched hand and its fingers are kind of all clenched together. Mm. And uh, the, the speaker or the person who's clenching their hand says, time enough. And that's all he says. He, and then he walks out and it's revealed that it's Roy Batty, mm. the, the lead uh, replicant. Yeah, I, I did, actually didn't even catch that. What, is, what do you think he's talking about there? Well, I, I mean, I kind of, I, I'll talk about it later. 
Wait, is there something that you okay. read? Is there something that you see there? No, I, I honestly didn't even I didn't even notice that. I was too busy going, oh, this is this is Roy to like pay attention to what he was saying. I guess. So Roy leaves the the phone booth there, and Kowalski is outside, and Roy is like, "Were you able to get your photos?" And he was like, "No, someone was there," and Roy was like kind of weirded out by it he was like was it a man and then and then Kowalski was like yes and then Roy was like was he a policeman and I just like I think that oh, yeah. Roy is like so funny great. and cool like in this whole movie he's so like eccentric and awesome definitely eccentric so together they they leave that little phone booth area and they go to this this shop and this this is a really cool scene because we get this like frozen freezer area where this guy's like crafting replicant eyes and there's a guy that's in like a froze he's in like a suit that keeps him heated, I guess, because it's so cold in there and he's working on eyes all day. And Roy and Kowalski go in and kind of drag him out by these like cords that are attached to him that are pumping in hot air, I'm assuming. They threaten him without saying anything, but they like rip apart his suit and he's kind of starts freezing because it's cold in there. And they they start asking him about when the creation dates, inception dates, incept dates, sorry. And they're wondering about the eyes and and the eye maker says something about i crafted your eyes you because he says he's a nexus six and he's like i crafted those eyes and roy says a really cool line where he's like if only you could see what i saw with your eyes and i think that's just every time that roy batty opens his mouth he says something cool <laughs> and that ties right into what we were talking about right um it's almost like the ownership of perspective and how the creators are trying to force the androids to see themselves and to see the world in a certain way and they're choosing through their actions to see it in a different way and to see themselves in a different way and i think that the guy the the fact that this guy's an eye maker and i think during the speech he's like putting eyes on top of his shoulders and stuff and it's a cool scene and i think when you when you take into account all the symbolism going on there it gets even cooler the eye maker says that Tyrell is is the person who just designed Roy's mind and that's who he should seek out if he wants answers as mm-hmm. far as like how long till he expires and that kind of thing. And the man says that that JF Sebastian can take you there and then Roy asks how he can find JF Sebastian. Next up, Deckard gets to his apartment and he's in the elevator and he's he's going all the way up to his floor and it's un- not until he gets to his floor that he realizes somebody's been in the elevator with him and he like pulls his gun on them and it ends up being Rachel from Rachel, mm. the Tyrell Corporation and she's like kind of walking with him because um, Tyrell, she says Tyrell wouldn't see her and she's like something weird had happened and Deckard slams the door in his face and then feels bad about it a second later and he lets her in and he offers her a drink of the same thing he's drinking which is the Johnny Walker from before. They love the Johnny Walker <laughs> in this universe. Mm-hmm. She asks Deckard, uh, she says to Deckard, she's like, you think that I'm a replicant, don't you? And he doesn't answer she shows him a photo of her and her mother and she says this is this is my memory and he counters her memory with one that he was he just was like remember when you were a kid and you went with your brother to uh, some building and you're gonna play doctor but then you got scared and ran away and she basically is like how could he have known this and Deckard uh, tells her you have implanted memories um, and then she kind of gets sad over it and he feels bad about it and he's like you know what I'm sorry it was just a joke you should leave and she doesn't leave at first. He like goes to the other room to make her a drink because she's like dealing with a lot of stuff. And then as he's pouring her a drink, she she throws the photo down and runs out of the room because she's kind of coming to grips with the fact that she is a replicant. And then uh, Deckard picks up the photo and looks at it, which prompts him to uh, go through the other photos he found. 
Yeah, we talked about this in in our first episode in the book coverage. I I think when we were talking about these me- these created memories and how our lives really are built upon our memories, right? That's all there is. And so to be to be hit with the idea that your memories are false or implanted um, would be like a world-shattering moment. So I totally bought this and Whenever we start getting into that, it's it's yeah, it's it's really interesting because, um, as I mentioned in that episode, like having gone through something where I don't remember a car accident I was in, it's really weird, and it's this weird sensation when you don't remember something yet, uh, you know that it did happen, and this is the reverse of that, where you do remember something, but you're told that it didn't happen, or at least it didn't happen to you. So out on the street, um, somewhere in this in Los Angeles. We see one of the replicants that we haven't seen up to this point is Pris, and she's kind of walking around and comes across this garbage pile and then buries herself in it. Um, out of a bus nearby, a guy gets out and starts walking towards her, and he drops his keys in front of her, and she like freaks out because he's like, he was like in front of her, and she's just freaking out. <laughs> and she gets up and starts running away. And something that I wanted to mention here is just like within the research that I did, the actress, uh, I don't know if you remember, but when she went to run away, she ran into the bus and it like busted out a window of the bus and her arm like went into the window and she actually, that wasn't supposed to happen And her arm, like, and it made the cut, but it was like her arm went through the window and it like cut up her arm and she has scars on her arm to this day because of that and like acted through it. She like, the scene was another like 30 seconds after she took that hit. Um, now, in the novel, this Pris character is the same model as the Rachel character, and that did not that is not true in the in the movie. Right, which is you can see where I was going when we were reading the novel and you were asking. I I was like, yeah, actually, you're right. I was like, I was like, I wonder if this is why he was confused about that's that. That's exactly what it was, or not confused, but like if that led into your theory crafting. It did because I just assumed that he would keep things fairly fairly similar, but it, yeah, they're right. they're completely different. Although she does, I mean, this is her meeting Sebastian, who is pretty similar to Isidore in the novel. Although Isidore in the novel does not work for the Tyrell Corporation. He's just kind of this, uh, you know, quote-unquote chicken head, they call him, and who, who who lives out in this abandoned building. So that part kind of stays, but he instead he's a little bit more important than that he works for uh, the Tyrell Corporation, it seems like. J.F. Sebastian is a little more intelligent. He's like a tinkerer. He does like some genetic... He also has a, um, a disorder that he talks about, and that's why he wasn't able to go off-world. He had to stay on Earth, which is kind of similar to the chicken head situation. It's something where he ages, I think, abnormally fast or something? Yep. So Pris freaks out, uh, runs over, run, actress accidentally runs into the bus, and, and J.F. Sebastian's like, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to scare you. Here, come get, here's your bag, and gives her her bag back. And she, my read on this whole scene is obviously Roy, Roy kind of sent her there, right? I don't know if that's what you picked up on, but um, she's been sent because Roy knows that he needs to find J.F. Sebastian, and she happened to find him, and then uh, she, what happens here is she convinces him to let her come into the apartment and he's going to feed her and, and like give her shelter because she was like trying to hide under some garbage for shelter. She has a couple of like devious looks that clue us in that, you know, she, the, the, the thing she's portraying to him isn't necessarily 100% true. As they go into JF Sebastian's building, um, he tells her that he lives alone in this massive building. And this this is an incredible location for the shoot. Um I don't know if this is all practical or, or if it was shot on some stage somewhere, but on, like 
I love that is like this the, like decaying building that's com- almost falling apart, but the elevators still work. And from above, there's like a glass ceiling, and there's like the lights of the blimp are, are shining in through. And like there's this theme. It's something that happens in all of the all of the windows is that there's always lights shooting in. And I just think like aesthetically, that's like a very cool choice because it, it kind of makes it feel like there's always, even though there's like a static shot and like something's there, nothing's really going on the shot. They're just talking in a room like Deckard and, and uh, Rachel in that last scene. There's movement because the lights are going by and you realize that like there's a larger world out there where f- flying cars are going by. And I think it just adds a lot. Mm-hmm. So there's these lights coming in through the ceiling and they make their way to JF Sebastian's room. And when we get there, he's, she, she asks her, don't you get lonely here? And he says, no, I make my own friends. I make my toys. And these, he's, we find out that he's like a genetic designer. And these little genetically designed people come out. And they are, kind of greet him. And they, they don't seem to be like fully formed like replicants or anything like that. But they are some, they're alive in some way, I, th- I think. Yeah, they're like these little, like, they're all wearing like clown clothes. And there's all these, it's, it's it's a kind of a creepy effect and i, I think that's what they're going for and that and and it it shows that he has his little friends he makes but it's also adds that, like a sense of unease and like kind of that uncanny feeling when you see these uh human-like creatures i mean i feel bad for them too because they're like mm-hmm. they they seem to be alive i think they're alive and they're like yeah. these got this guy's toys and they they kind of seem in in pain sometimes and i don't know that's got a lot of creepiness going on interesting looks on their faces where they yeah the, or they look afraid at later at one point jf sebastian asks pris if she has any friends or family or anything she's like oh i'll tell my friends that i'm here tomorrow in the next scene we get deckard and he's kind of slumped over a piano and he's been drinking this is after rachel left um and he's kind of starts daydreaming and he has this daydream of like a unicorn just trotting through i had no idea what this was about i'm hoping you can shed some light on it for me okay so i'm assuming some voiceover would have helped with this yeah honestly um i think i'm pretty sure i because I, I kind of get the versions mixed up uh and i only rewatched the full the final cut this this a couple times this week and the it's it'll come to play more of a part later but the daydream sequence i don't even think was in the theatrical cut so i don't even think the voiceover would have helped with it um Mm. but i'll explain more about that later um basically yeah it's it's like i can't i think it kind of divides people i think there are people that feel like the unicorn sequence is kind of kind of weird and jarring and like i would agree with that but if you put in the context of like the whole film he's kind of just like I don't know. You can. There's so many different reads on it. My read on it has to do with something that happens later, so we'll address it then. He kind of like gets up from the piano and picks up a f- picture, and he, he picks up the picture that that Rachel left behind, and he thinks about how he should go look at Kowalski's Leon Kowalski's photos, and he starts flipping through them, and he sees um, this this picture of a man in a bath, and there's like three different pictures of the same exact thing, so he's like interested in that. So he goes over to this machine, which I thought was pretty funny because it's like a VCR for photos, basically. So he just like pops the photo in there and it sucks mm-hmm. it in. And, and then he's able to do the most magical enhancement I've ever seen on this photo. Of course, yeah. He's like punch in, go left, like, like CSI, but like in like 500 years. So it's a lot of that. He enhances the photo and he actually is able to like manipulate the photo a little bit to like get to an angle where you can see uh, there's a woman in a bed in the other room because there's like an open doorway. And there's a, so the woman's laying in the bed and there's some, all he can really get out of it is that there's a woman with a mark on her face. 
uh, because he found this, whatever the blood and stuff that was that was in there, he thinks maybe, oh, this is some sort of clue as well. There's like a woman in the other room that I didn't originally see. Deckard takes this flake um, and what we find out is a scale. I, I don't know. I, did you realize what it was right away? No, not right away. Yeah, because it's kind of, it's it doesn't really look like a, what I would think a snake scale would look like, but it ends up, he takes it to a shop and this woman says that it's a fake snake scale. So she analyzes this scale under a super microscope and sees there's a serial number there. And she, she says, oh, I know the serial number. I know who made this. And she sends him down to this inventor, snake inventor that she knows, artificial snake inventor. And when she, when she, he gets there, he confronts this guy and, and kind of threatens him. And he says that Taffy Lewis in Chinatown is who he sold it to. So this is like more of that noir. He's just figuring out the case. He's on the case and he's not going to give up. So he gets to this club in Chinatown. He asks Taffy about the snake and Taffy's kind of like this mobster gangster kind of guy and he like doesn't want to work with police or bounty hunters or anybody like that so he doesn't really give him any information but Deckard hangs out in the bar ends up staying and drinking a little more and later in the night there's like some sort of uh, performance going on and he perks up his ears because it's like this woman and a snake and mm-hmm. did you pick up anything weird from the scene because I picked up something that I never picked up before. Yeah, well, she's supposed to be doing something like sexual with the snake, right? Yeah, like we don't see it, but it's it's they say something, right? Yeah, I didn't. She said he says something about like she's gonna indulge in the the other pleasures the snake can provide or something crazy like that, other than the apple yeah. from the Garden of Eden, and uh, uh-huh. and then Deckard like turns his face away. Now I did want to say this character. Um, I mean, we'll get more into her, but this seems to be the version of Luba Luft from the book to me. Um, yeah, she's not an opera singer. She's like a stage dancer with a snake, and it's it's a little grungier and more cyberpunk, I think. But it's similar character in that she has talent, and that she is a performer, and that he has he kind of goes back to her dressing room just like he does in the in the novel. So yeah, I, this is basically Luba Luft, I think. So he goes like you're saying. He goes into her dressing room afterwards, or near her dressing room in the back hallway, backstage, and uh, kind of convinces her that he's like a union worker who's like trying to help prevent some like creepy men from taking advantage of her. The voice that Harrison Ford used for the scene was cracking me up the whole time. Super unconvincing. Yeah, I did not buy that he sounded like that for a second. Not at all. Really funny. So he's like telling her that this is all, he's like wondering if he can ask her some questions to make sure she's not being taken advantage of. And this whole time she's saying, she's just talking to him and she just like starts undressing and gets in the shower. And while she's in the shower, he like looks around her room trying to figure out, cause obviously he's trying to investigate her and see if there's any clues in there. She gets out of the shower and she asks Deckard to like finish drawing off her back. And then she like elbows him, pushes him over and starts like choking him, which is like his sign that it's probably a replicant. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so she attacks him. She takes off. This really cool chase takes place, and you just get to see more of the the world. And and I mean, the way that it's shot, you're just in the crowd, and you're you're pushing through all these like interesting looking people and different looking people and different clothes people. And you, he jumps on a bus at one point, and he's, they're jumping over cars, and he's chasing her down. And eventually, he gets to the point where he's uh, got a clean shot, and he's like, "Everybody, get down!" And he pulls the trigger, and he misses her a couple times. He eventually hits her. And then she's running towards this glass display case looking thing with like some sort of snow display going on. And it's this is an iconic moment because as she's falling through that glass, it's been done so many times after this and in reference to the scene. But it's kind of a slow motion shot of Deckard shoots her. And as she gets shot, she's falling through this display and there's snow and blood. Her coat is translucent. And to me, I was struck by how 
I couldn't always tell the like where her coat began and where the glass began, and they kind of interplayed with each other, and I don't know thematically, you know the you know her not having something that actually covers her, and we're talking a lot about sight and, and androids and all this stuff. I think there's something there too with with the symbolism of having like a see through piece of clothing on. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that either. You're pulling some good little things that I didn't even notice after seeing it so many times. I like that. That's yeah. yeah. There's definitely Maybe it's complete bullshit, but <laughs> I can make it sound like something. I believe it, man. <laughs> I'm with you. So, it so yeah. Deckard ends up retiring this this replicant here, and he's like immediately affected by it. You can see he walks up to to check. He ends up going over to a like a some sort of liquor store or something, getting a bottle, and then wouldn't you know it, Gaff shows up, which is the police officer who keeps folding stuff. And he like wraps him on the back and he's like, Bryant wants to see you again. Walks over to a nearby police spanner and Bryant tells Deckard that there's four more replicants. And he's like, no, there should be only three. And he's like, no, four. He's like, that, that other one, Rachel, ran away from the Tyrell Corporation. So she's another one we're going to have to take down. And Deckard's like, oh, because he kind of has a... You can tell that he's really shaken after this encounter. And I think that's something that's similar to the Luba Luft uh, scene from the book. And that, similarly, he is. This is him, not feeling so great about the thing he just did, and clearly he isn't thinking of her as a android that he's retired. He. This is a man who has just killed somebody, I think, and it's weighing on him. So I think we we are seeing him shifting the way he thinks about these these andro- androids. So the audience has shown that. Uh, Leon Kowalski was actually in the crowd during the shooting. You saw a lot of the stuff that happened. Deckard see as Bryant leaves. Deckard sees Rachel in the crowd, so he's like he starts running towards her, trying to catch up to her. She she starts walking away, and he like kind of loses her in the crowd. As he's as he loses her in the crowd, somebody grabs him, and it's Leon Kowalski, and they start this epic fight. And we actually sh- I should have mentioned earlier, but they talk about how Kowalski is like extremely strong. He's like some sort of like loader. Mm. replicant like he was used in like military situations as was i think roy they talk about he was also military related and yeah. so he's just like messing up deckard he's like throwing him up against cars and it's denting the cars and like punching him and all kinds of stuff and he starts yeah, he, takes, he takes a beating that is one thing that I, I i didn't think held up quite as well is the um the way punches sound in 80s movies it's, it's at some point we figured out as a society or as a movie as movie uh, filmmakers that punches don't sound like that and when you make them sound like really splashy and like i don't know how to describe it but like it's very unconvincing and every time i go back and watch indiana jones or any movie like that often harrison ford films and he punches somebody and it does that really like unrealistic sound it it's a little bit jarring it didn't ruin the scene but it's just i noticed it Definitely, I will say there's one that happens much later where there's like a double smack move that happens on Deckard, and it was like, whoosh, 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 and I was like, that was that was pretty uh, <laughs> egregious. You can tell it's someone in like a in like a studio making a sound, right? Yeah. Like that's the thing. Like they're 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 like banging something together or like wobbling a piece of paper or whatever it is to get those those sounds. Yeah, it's like weird foley. Yeah, I want to know how they how they invented that. Rachel saves ends up saving Deckard because he's being choked by by Kowalski up against like a truck yeah. and Rachel shoots him in the head so after Rachel saves Deckard they they end up going back to to Deckard's apartment yeah, this is good a time I need to talk about audible we have an affiliate link we'd like to share with you it's uh, audibletrial.com forward slash ink to film 
if you use that link, you can get 30 free days and a free credit, which you can use on any novel you want. Um, you could listen to Do, Do Android Stream of Electric Sheep, uh, which is the novel this movie is based off of, or get ahead for something that's coming out next year, like Annihilation by Jeff Vandermeer. I just saw the trailer for. I mean, I used Audible for a good section of, of the novel It, which was our our first project that we did on this podcast here. And it just adds an extra little layer to your book reading experience because even if you're not a person who likes to sit down to read a book, you can get that, you can experience it and experience it in a different way if you do like to sit down with the book because you're having someone read it to you and it's almost like it's acted for you because the the readers are very articulate and dynamic. So I think it's just a fun way to listen. I, I was thinking about this the other day. Uh, a lot of people don't read and feel like I'm just not a reader and they make this kind of statement about themselves. And I think Audible is a great way to break out of that because it's it's halfway between the active process of picking up a book and reading it and the more passive process of listening to something, which we do. If you're listening to a podcast right now, you do this already. And this is a way you can listen to a book you've been you you wanted to read but maybe didn't ever take the the initiative to go out and do. So, I think it's a, it's a really good kind of icebreaker and a good way to get into reading if it's maybe something you've fallen out of the habit of. And that's audibletrial.com forward slash ink to film. You want to make sure you use that that link so that you can get those 30 free days and get that free credit. So we're basically giving you a free book and you just got to go pick it up. Yeah, thank you to Audible. Thanks to Audible. So after Rachel saves Deckard, they go back to Deckard's apartment. And Rachel is like clearly upset about killing Leon. Deckard is like all beat up and he doesn't really realize how messed up she is at first. He he like sees that she's crying after she turns and says like, this isn't my job. This isn't what I do. And he can tell that she's like been affected by it. So he goes over to the sink and um, starts washing off his face because he's all beat up and he starts pulling out teeth. And while he's doing that, Rachel comes up and she's like, if I run away because she knows that she's wanted now by the Tyrell Corporation and all of them because she ran away. She's like, if I run away, would you come after me? And he's like, no. And after a long pause, he says, but someone will. So he's kind of saying, like, you're in a lot of danger. And Rachel asks Deckard if he's ever taken the Voight-Kampf test. And he doesn't reply, um, mostly because he's in the other room, like, really beat up and, like, resting. And she kind of just says it to the house, and he doesn't answer. She sits down and starts, like, unbraiding her hair or undoing her hair. And Deckard, like, realizes that she hasn't come in the room yet, so he gets up and goes over. She's, like, sitting at the piano, and she starts playing the music that's, like, written there. And he he tells her that he drafts music, and she's, like, she says that she remembers taking lessons, but she doesn't know now because she's realizing that she's in a replicant. She doesn't know if it was her or Tyrell's niece, which is what a lot of her memories are based off of. So then we get on this weird scene where Deckard starts kissing her, and she's not really reciprocating, and then they kiss on the lips and then she doesn't really respond to that and then he kind of gets upset by it or or it's it's just honestly I don't know what to make very much of the scene I feel like it's it's something to do with like him being frustrated with the way things are going and and like seeing how she's hurting and it's just it's a weird scene I don't really know how to explain this part but he like forces himself on her and starts kissing her and he says like ask he's saying like ask me to kiss you so that he'll he will kiss her and she, he it's it's weird what did you what did you think about this part yeah I, I i wanted to let you finish the description of this before i launched in i this this series is 
I think one of the more problematic scenes in the in the movie and also I just had several okay so we'll start with a high note first thing I wanted to point out when he takes he takes a shot at the beginning of the scene and when he pulls back the glass there's like a swirl of blood in it that's seen through the light which I thought was super cool really awesome shot and it was it was really an attention to detail that I really appreciate and that they thought about the fact that his lip is bleeding because he just got beat up and he's taking this shot and that it's going to spill over into the alcohol. Um, I don't know if symbolically if there's something more there, but it was cool. When she starts letting her hair down, this is the part where, that I referenced earlier where the score did, does something weird. All of a sudden, this like really jazzy saxophone starts playing. And it it immediately is this big like flashing sign of like, this is going to be a romantic sequence. And she starts letting her hair down, which is another very like 80s thing, like... All of a sudden, now she's uh, vulnerable. Now she's uh, more of a sexual object. And sure enough, that's kind of how this scene plays out, right? Like now Deckard has decided that he's attracted to her and he wants to have some sort of romantic relationship with him and I, with her. And I don't want to say it's all... It's, it's, it's framed in a way that's problematic. I don't have any issue with him being romantically, romantically into her. It's more that the scene plays out in a very rapey way. Um, it's the best way I can describe it. That's what I wrote down in my notes. And it, she tries to go out the door, and he, like, slams it in front of her, and won't let her leave. And she says no a couple times, and it's giving him all these, like, verbal, like, nope, I don't want to do this. And then he, like, compels her to essentially say yes and to say that she wants him. And I, I can only... I mean, this kind of stuff, you do see it in some older films, and I think it's tied very much to the machismo of these leading men in these kind of movies and that they're supposed to be so manly and dynamic that they can just kind of impose their will on women and that they'll they'll end up it's kind of a male fantasy i guess in a really creepy way and i don't know it skews me out now but it's not something i'm unfamiliar with if you watch a lot of 80s movies I, unfortunately you do see scenes like this come up i just didn't really understand like i guess from a story perspective he wanted to make Deckard this like he wanted this character to have like some unredeemable qualities or something like that like yeah i don't understand really why the decision was made ultimately i think it is they're trying to show that he is having a lot of inner turmoil and he's very conflicted and that he's angry about the way he feels and that he fe that he's viewing her as a person instead of a thing and he's so angry about it that this is kind of the way it plays out but the problematic thing is that it completely ignores the woman in this scene and the fact that he is forced essentially forcing himself on her it becomes all about the man this scene is all about deckard and that's why i think it's problematic because it's it's making the woman character more of a set piece that's being used to further his character arc it's definitely a rough scene like i and this is the part that I would say that I, I'm not a huge fan of. Like, I love this movie overall, but it's just a, it's a tough scene. Did you notice that with the score, too? Like, it, it also felt jarring to me in, in, in when you take into context of what happens. Like, this ultimately isn't a very romantic scene, but it's almost trying to, like, it's like a laugh track in a in a sitcom trying to force you to find something funny, except for this is trying to force you to find something romantic. It's like, oh, let's listen to this jazzy saxophone. It'll soften this scene that's otherwise kind of 
<laughs> kind of off-putting. Maybe, I mean, maybe that was their intention. Maybe they were like, this is going to be a tough scene. Maybe they were that, that aware of what they were doing, where it was like, this is going to be a tough scene. Let's, let's do this to people to make them feel even more uncomfortable because it's supposed to be like this romantic music leading into a romantic scene, but it's not that. It's, the, it's kind of the opposite. It's kind of violent. I don't know. It, I didn't get the impression that they thought of it that way, though. Yeah, I don't think so either. I'm just posing that. Like, that could be a potential thing that happened. But the the thing about the saxophone coming in and stuff, it's like kind of... I don't think saxophones specifically were used in, in film noir, but it's very, like, film noir to have that, like, rising That's score and, and more, like... It stood out from the rest of the f- score, though, which is all synth, right? Yeah. Or a lot of synth and piano and stuff like that. I would agree. I, I don't remember the score specifically in that moment, but if it is how you're describing it, it's kind of it kind of isn't necessarily in line with all the stuff that goes on. But overall, yeah, so you should go back scene. and watch that scene again, just just to listen for the saxophone as it comes in. Like it, it was so striking to me. I will, yeah. So after Deckard forces himself on on Rachel, um, we cut to a scene. She does eventually kind of acquiesce and seem to be into it, but you know that doesn't make the scene any less skeevy. I agree. It's definitely, it's just bad. He doesn't like full on rape her. Yeah. It's not, you know, but it's, it's, it's a very, it's violent. It's kind of rape. It's violent. Yeah. And like, and like it's rape adjacent adjacent, <laughs> which is pretty terrible place to be. So in this next scene, Pris is kind of investigating Sebastian's house while he's sleeping. And she, she looks at some of his toys and his inventions and that, and sees this like weird contraption kind of looks into it. And right then Sebastian wakes up and he's like, what are you doing? She's like, I'm just, just peeking at everything, checking everything out. So they start talking and Sebastian uh, mentions how he's not off world because he has this condition that like kind of ages him faster. Mm-hmm. And Pris is kind of sympathetic and they're just talking. And then out of nowhere, Roy pops into the in the door. Sebastian does not like that because Roy like shows up and he's like, what's up? And like immediately takes charge and starts kissing Pris. And Sebastian's like, I'm going to go make breakfast and then like leaves and gets in their way. And so they follow him into the kitchen and they're talking about like what he does and how he genetically makes stuff and how he's close with Tyrell. And eventually the conversation leads into the fact that JF can get Roy close to Tyrell. Yeah. Just real quick in this scene. um, I thought Pris was very Harley Quinn esque. Um, She, she like paints her face and she's kind of doing these acrobatics and her whole personality kind of transforms when Roy shows up. Right. And we see her being kind of over the top and kind of cartoony. Um, yeah, and this is this predates Harley Quinn, so I, I was curious. I was like, I wonder if they got any inspiration from this scene. I'm sure or this this character. I would say anything remotely sci-fi or like just all in that entire world. Anyone who's seen this is is influenced by it. I think I think there's so much to pull from. Eventually, Roy is able to convince Sebastian to take him to Tyrell, and like right then. In the following scene, Roy takes Sebastian to the Tyrell Corp. And Tyrell wasn't expecting Sebastian, and he like kind of answers him on the vid phone without looking and talks to him about this chess game. They're always playing Sebastian and Tyrell are always playing chess back and forth. And they're kind of playing chess as he's coming up the elevator. They're like moving the pieces. And then Sebastian gets a checkmate right as like they're getting there which is kind of like a sign of like they're checkmating tyrell by having roy tyrell's creation show up unannounced and they come into the room and roy's like i brought a guest and tyrell isn't really that surprised that roy's there he's like i'm surprised you didn't come sooner and they talk a lot about kind of 
Roy's expiration, the things that he's dealing with, like what it means to be an, basically an android or a replicant, the, the, it starts to get weirder because it takes on this like father son like dynamic as they're talking and yeah. creator and, and created. Yeah. And so he starts approaching it from that standpoint and like Roy's talking to him as if he's like some creator as if you're talking to God and he's asking him like, mm-hmm. why didn't you do this to make us last longer? And Tyrell's like, well, because it would create this malfunction. Why didn't you do this? And he's like, well, if I did that, then you wouldn't be able to do this. And he's telling him all of the things that make it impossible for them to live much longer than four years. And then he's like, well, make me live longer. And Tyrell's like, I can't. And then Roy sits down on the bed and like puts his hands on Tyrell and like comes in for a kiss and starts like kissing him kind of, and then slides his fingers over and starts like crushing his head and then pushing his thumbs into his eyes and killing Tyrell. Yeah. So Roy, Roy, I was, I thought of very much of Frankenstein and Frankenstein's monster here. And I think there is some similarities in the relationship and this is Frankenstein's monster coming back and confronting him, right? And Roy, I think it's very... I think all of, this is where all of the godly images and the and the pyramid pay off. And that we, we see Tyrell as this godlike figure. And he's created these beings. And then Roy confronts him and then, you know, very specifically crushes his eyes, blinding him. And I thought that was a rejection of rejection of the way Tyrell views androids. He's, he rejects that, that perspective, and he's going to go with his own. And um, I also wanted to point out that Jared Leto's character in the 2049 uh, re, uh, movie that's getting made is blind. And I wondered if that was a direct callback to this scene where where uh, Tyrell gets blinded as he's killed. It definitely has. It's in keeping with that eye through line that we've been talking about through the book and through the movie. I definitely could see that. That's definitely he's he seems to be the creator. Like he seems to be the, the, the one who takes over for Tyrell. So after Roy crushes Tyrell's eyes and kills him, Sebastian runs away and we get um, Roy kind of running after him. He's like, Sebastian, I'm sorry. Cut to next scene, we get Deckard in his car and Bryant calls him while he's like driving through this tunnel. And basically Bryant's like, hey, we were here at the Tyrell Corp and we Tyrell's we, we infer that Tyrell is dead. But he says we also found the body of J.F. Sebastian here uh, next to him. So Roy killed J.F. Sebastian. Following that scene, Deckard kind of gets to a point where he can pull over. He stops and then he calls. He's able to get Sebastian's house number and he calls Sebastian's mm-hmm. house and when he does, Pris picks up the phone and he's like, hey, I'm a friend of uh, JF Sebastian. And she hangs up and then Deckard's like, that's no way to treat a friend. And he's like, I should go over there. That's a, a change from the novel, too, because the East, uh, John Isidore character does survive the events of the novel, um, whereas the movie version doesn't. Right when I was beginning to get some sympathy for, for, for Roy and like the sympathy is mounting, he goes and like kills somebody who was helping him. Which is kind of reminiscent yeah. of that idea that, like in the in the novel, Pris and Ermagard, who we didn't even talk about, Erm Ermgard mm-hmm. isn't in this film. Oh yeah, the the absent Ermagard. Ermgard is kind of a, a Pris and Ermgard in this film is Pris. Yeah, I would say part of her, part of the Ermagard character goes to Pris, um, and like the romantic relationship between because that character is is 
Ermgard is uh, like romantically linked to Roy in the book. And then also part of that character, I think, is given to um, what was the male replicant's Kowalski. name who just died? Yeah, Kowalski. Yeah, I think he, part of it is given to him too because they're kind they're kind of a pair and they're seen together a lot. And that was how Ermgard was in the book. Deckard calls, like I said, and finds out that somebody's in the house and they didn't fully let the call go through. So he decides to drive over to Sebastian's building and he goes in. And then we get this those awesome shots of that interior of the building again with the lights coming through. And he's kind of going up with his, with his gun in hand. And we get to Sebastian's room and Deckard goes into the building, into the room and we see we as the audience see as Deckard's coming up it's cutting between him coming up the building and and Pris like putting on this like veil and she's sitting wearing a veil next to all the other toys and she's not moving so as Deckard's going through he sees all these toys that are in motion and then doesn't realize that Pris isn't real he thinks that she's fake and as he gets closer to her he thinks something is off and then she jumps and attacks him and then this is that that slapping sound effects that we got that i was talking Mm -hmm. about earlier she does a bunch of acrobatics and like does like Mm -hmm. handsprings and like jumps on his head and gets around his neck and then starts like slapping him in the face while she's like yeah like around his neck he ends up getting her off of him and then he's able to shoot her a couple times and that was the end of pris she has a big screaming death which uh, to me reminded me of the lupa love scene did you think of that I didn't make that. I didn't make the connection to the Luba Luff, but the screaming. I was gonna mention how how, like she had a brutal death. She she screamed for like an uncomfortable amount of time. And, and now that you say that, it's definitely very similar to Luba Luff. Deckard assumes that there's someone else in the building because the replicants typically are kind of somewhat nearby each other, and he starts going through very slowly with his gun drawn still. And as he moves makes his way through, we see Roy Batty like dive through the hallway and go over to where Pris was. And he's like over by her. He's really affected by her death. He's like starts rubbing blood, her blood all over his face and, and being kind of crazy. And then he starts taunting Deckard. So this next sequence from here to, to the end of the film is, is my favorite part of the whole film. Roy taunting Deckard through the house. Deckard's trying to find his way out. Howling. Yeah. And what, what, what happens first is, uh, He's by Pris's body, and, and Deckard's still walking around trying to find him. Roy Batty, like, smashes his hand through the wall and grabs Deckard's arm that has the gun in hand and pulls his arm back through the wall in the hole that he created and then starts breaking his fingers, starts, like, snapping his fingers. Yeah. It was kind of an improbable scene, but, like, I was just willing to buy it, and it was it was, it was was definitely cool. He breaks his fingers, which is, is interesting because it'll come back to play a part here in a second. He breaks his fingers. Deckard, Deckard realizes, like, okay, well, I'm kind of out of my league at this point. And he starts, this is when he realizes, like, I got to get out of the building. So he's trying to find a way out of the building. He's running. And meanwhile, Roy goes back to Pris's body and starts getting really weird. And like I said, he was rubbing the blood all over his face. And then he starts, he hears from the other room, he hears Deckard, like, breaking his fingers back into place. And he's, like, making noise. And then that's when Roy Batty, like, decides to go full Wolfman. And he, like, mm-hmm. takes off his clothes. He's wearing just, like, his, his boxers. And he starts, like, howling like a wolf, which is, like, really intimidating. Like, like you would think that that wouldn't be very intimidating, but it's, it's the guy's, he's a big guy, and he's running around in his underwear, and he's howling like a wolf. Yeah, I said he was very animalistic. He starts saying things that, like, I would, you know, I'd like to go back and listen to them again, but I thought they were kind of nonsensical at the time. Like, I wasn't able to follow a lot of what he was saying. Um, didn't, doesn't he, like, pierce his own 
his own body too, like his own hand or something. Yeah, so we get to a point where while Deckard's running away, he climbs up um, a bookshelf and then pushes through into like the through the floor, which is just like you know the second floor or whatever. He pushes up like the rotting mm-hmm. ground because it's all water water damage. So he pushes up through and he's in this bathroom, and Roy Batty is like meanwhile trying to catch up to him, and then he realizes his hand is starting to clench again, like his hand was clenching in the in the phone booth which like comes full circle to show that like this entire time he's been deteriorating and he's been like dying and he, that's why he's been like trying to find a way to survive longer. So his hand is like like clenched and then he takes this nail from a floorboard or something and pushes it through his hand in order to like force his hand to reopen. And uh, so he does that and then makes his way up to the bathroom where Deckard's like breaking his fingers back into place still. And then Roy Patty does this crazy thing where he like, rather than just running through the door that's nearby, he runs and he like smashes his head through the wall. Like it's all water damage and everything, but he smashes his head through the wall. And then he's talking to Deckard like three feet away from the doorway. He's, he smashes his head through the, through the wall and he's talking to Deckard through there. <laughs> it's a weird juxtaposition between him because I mean, it, this is the same what happens later. And I think in subsequent views, it would probably be less strange to me but it was very strange to me how he was being played as being so out of control and, and frightening that at the same time we get things like i don't know about you but when i see someone pierce their hand their, their palm with a nail that's like a direct reference to crucifixion right and it's setting him up to be a martyr which is i think how this kind of plays out and um it's 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 it, those two inter those two things interplaying is it creates a very odd but di- you know interesting dynamic. Yeah, that the Christ allegory is like like you said before. There's a lot of that in in the film. Like there's a lot of like things that are touching or at least like referencing that in some way. And like the the nail through the hand was it, yeah, it's a pretty blatant one. He's like he's like as far as he, him being, I guess we'll let's just finish it out here and then I'll, we'll touch on that yeah. in a second. So basically his head's in the wall and Deckard uh, takes the opportunity to grab a weapon. And then when he comes, when he finally pulls his head out of the wall and comes in the doorway, Deckard hits him a couple times. And then he's like, I got to get out of here. He kicks out a window and he starts climbing out the window and he's up on this giant building and he starts like scaling the building. And then we, he makes it up to the roof. Roy Batty pops his head through this like latch thing it, almost as soon as Deckard gets to the roof and he's able to come up. And then Deckard sees him and runs and decides to try to jump over to the next building, jumps over to the next building, but doesn't quite make it and just like has a grip basically on the edge of this like scaffolding. And Roy sees this and he, he, I I wanted to get your take on the dove. He like has this dove Mm -hmm. and yeah, he just has it all. He just has a dove and he's like holding it and like fondling it and like kind of like saying a bunch of stuff. And then he decides to run, jump over Deckard, makes it easily. And he's on the other side talking to Deckard about fear and what it's how fear is what it's like to be a slave at all times and and a lot of the things that he was dealing with. And Deckard, meanwhile, is falling off. And right at the last second, Deckard's hand slips and he's gonna fall and Roy grabs him and pulls him up. Which is like you mentioned, he becomes he saves our our main character in this moment, even though he was the one who was trying to kill him. And then we get one of my favorite speeches in film history. Yeah, I mean, it's iconic. It's clearly. amazing. I don't know if you saw this or not, but the, the very end portion. So what he says is, I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. Attack ships on fire off the shoulder of Orion. I watched sea beams glitter in the dark near the Tannhauser Gate. All those moments will be lost in time, like tears and rain, time to die. And then Roy Batty kind of crumbles 
to like a fetal position almost while, while remaining standing and then he dies yeah i mean this i think one of the things that makes this scene so great is how surprising it is like th this is like you can't have you can't have seen this coming and this isn't in the this isn't in the novel this is a a, a big departure and then yeah you add that you add this mysterious dove into the mix and it's a really it's like this is the scene that lasts and sticks with you it's the reason it's the only scene i really remembered from seeing it as a kid um although i didn't remember everything he said and i think i was confused by it <laughs> but like that was the scene that stuck with me this guy on you know on the rooftop in the rain you know talking and and, and being very surprising as far as the dove i wanted to ask so first off I, if i if my my plain reading of it is it's a real dove that is well i should say an android dove but it, it i think it's an android dove and i think it's actually there it's not like an hallucination or anything i think he does actually have it uh, maybe it flew over to him because it was on the rooftop. I don't know. And I think white, when I see a white dove, I immediately think of doves are, you know, symbolic of peace, right? And I think this is a moment of Roy, who's this very conflicted, tortured character, finding, like, an inner peace. And and maybe it's his, his forgiveness of humanity and his willingness to save Deckard in that moment and then accept his own fate he ultimately finds peace and we see the we see that white dove fly away when he dies um so that was my read of the dove i like it the dove always to me represented this sort of like roy was in in the context of this universe and in terms of like how the other characters view him he's not real and i saw this as like his acceptance of death even though he's not real and the, i always saw it as like it like an olive branch like some sort of like that's what that's the kind of the connection that i always made was like the dove and the olive branch and it was like he the his gift his legacy would be rather than being this villain he did kill all these people he'd done these awful things but his last effort his last like moment was was an olive branch to i guess the human race or whatever it was trying mm -hmm. to trying to come together with or meet the two like opposing opposing sides and so this was his moment to secure his legacy even if it was just in one person's eyes he was like he did something good he saved this guy and he'd be remembered as like this tragic hero or tragic villain yeah i mean awesome scene i i went i this is one i went i went and watched it again on youtube just because i wanted to see that scene again because i knew it was so important to the movie and the score is incredible during it um, everything about it with the rain and the, the delivery of the line, Harrison Ford's reaction, I thought was, was subtle, but also really affecting and that how he is so confused and then sad and he gets caught up in the emotions that he's seeing. And I think he understands, which leads to the, you know, what comes after. I think he gets an understanding and a perspective in this moment that's going to propel that character forward into, you know, hopefully where we see him in the new movie. Yeah. So something I did want to mention was that I've always thought was incredible is as far as the script goes, um, Rutger Hauer, who plays Roy Batty, improvised the Tears and Rain line. Hmm. So as far as it was written, he he followed it through. And then I guess during the first read, he read he said that line. That was something that he added. And he like kind of looked at the writer right after he said it because it was a read-through they were all sitting around it like and doing a read-through of the film 
of the screenplay and he kind of looked over at the writer and then the writer like i saw a video where he was talking about it, and he basically says he looked at him like a naughty boy like he'd done something naughty and like changed <laughs> the script on him but um the the writer knew immediately that it was like a, a great audition so roy dies and deckard is left to like, contemplate that kind of and gaff shows up on the roof which is the guy who's been folding throughout he's been folding all the origami uh, he says good job to Deckard, but as he leaves, he is walking away and turns back and says, it's too bad she won't live, but then again, who does? Which I think is like going, this is, this is, I'll come back to this. We'll put a pin in that. So Deckard returns to his apartment and he's like coming in very quickly and he's like making sure that Rachel's okay because he left, left, left her there and he, she's like under the blanket and he like pulls it off thinking she might be dead. She's not dead. And he's like, we got to get out of here. We need to leave. We need to be on the run. We need to get away from all of this. And he, she gets her stuff. They get, they get all of everything they need and they're leaving. And, and Deckard has his gun drawn this whole time. And as he leaves the doorway, he's like checking the hallways and Rachel runs by. And as she does, she steps on something. Deckard realizes, walks over, picks it up. And it's a little origami unicorn. And Deckard has this, I love this final moment, the, the Harrison's Ford, Harrison Ford's reaction in this is acceptance, it's thankfulness, it's, it's so much. And I, I just love that that's the, the ending of the film. Well, and then they go and get on the elevator, you know, to get out of there, right? Because I guess the implication is that Gaff has been there, right? And that he's on the hunt now. Right. So For, for Rachel. Yeah, right? so he had been there. He knew Rachel was in there and he let her live and he oh okay he, he could have gone in to kill her but instead he left something and what he left was important because and i don't know if you want to try to draw all of the the connections together do you know uh, go ahead so basically um as in the same way that deckard was new rachel's memories he was able to say what they were because they were rep they were implanted memories that she had been given by someone Gaff knew that this is the read that, that in my opinion, uh, I've always, or at least at, since I've heard of it follow, is that uh, Deckard is a, is a replicant with implanted memories, and the unicorn was an implanted memory. Gaff known, knew that he had had that memory, left that as a little memento of him saying, like, I know that you're a replicant, and they run off together as replicants. So you think, you think he's a replicant in this movie? I do think he's a replicant. I, I disagree. I don't think he is. This is what I was hoping for. <laughs> I and I think I, I think the I don't know. I don't see an, I don't see enough evidence to support it. Okay. Uh, and I think I think yeah. I don't know. I I I can I guess I can get that read, but I wonder if if people hadn't seen the because I I've heard that the director's cut leans more heavily in that direction, and I always wonder if people hadn't seen that if they would feel this way. Because I think a plain reading of this movie is that he is not a replicant. It's more about him as a human deciding that he can love he can love a replicant and treat them like a human and that he can view them as human beings. But I think he himself isn't one. Yeah. Um, so. But I will say I didn't really unpack a lot of that unicorn stuff. So that is kind of a question mark. Like what did that all mean if not that? So. so, I mean, it kind of like you're saying, it's based on the cut. It's based on who wanted you to think what and what the the person in charge was was thinking. So, in the original original theatrical release, there was a lot of studio input. There was there was voiceover and there was a happy ending, which I'll I'll tell you. The happy ending was 
rather than just getting this shot here where they're going down the elevator, they actually show them like in a car off in like the wilderness, like not wilderness, but off on like roads that are like leading to like somewhere, you know? So it's like mm -hmm. a happy, they got away, they're in the car, they've, they've gotten somewhere. The way that this ends is like, it's like a, ch like Deckard is accepting the challenge. Like he's like, we're going to be on the, the run here. Um, but like you're, like you said, the different cuts will lean it in a different direction. My, my argument always leans back onto the unicorn stuff because it's like, what was the unicorn? There's no read. There's no, the, the correlation between Gaff leaving an origami unicorn and there being a, a sequence that has no relation. It just seems like there's like, there has to be a connection to be drawn there. Like there wouldn't be a vision and then there would be an origami of the same thing without there being some sort of connection. Like, so what is that? Is he, I mean, he could be a human with an implanted memory, but I don't know that they, like, I, that's not something that's established in the universe. Um, I, you know, I, I don't know. I feel like I haven't seen, I've only seen the movie once, so it's right. tough, but it does, I immediately am thinking of the trailers I've seen for the new one and Ryan Gosling saying to Harrison Ford, I have some questions for you or something. And then he says something like, no more questions or too many questions. Yeah. And it seems very indicative to me that like, this is him ask like trying to do the void comp test on him. Right. Because they're playing with the idea that people don't know whether or not Deckard now is an Android was an Android. Personally. I, I think that the fact that it's, it's up in the air is one of the best parts. And I'm kind of hoping that in 2049, they don't give a definitive answer. Well, I don't know. I think they have to. I think that's something that people are going to go into this movie expecting. You think so? To finally get an answer because this has been a question for 35 years. Yeah. And people want to know. I th you know and what? I think, I, th I think you're right. I think they will do it. I just think I just think that like it's it's part of this movie's like like prestige is the fact that like it's yeah. always had this like unanswered question and there's so many different versions and so many people's interpretation. There's one well, more thing that I'll pose to you. Um but you go ahead and say what you're going to say. Sorry. I was going to say the new movie could pose, a, could have a different mystery and maintain that. Like they could, they could answer that mystery, but then introduce a new one, maybe with a so. Ryan Gosling character or, or, they, or, you know, you don't want to be too similar, but some character within it or some question might be left open. Yeah. I would say that like, if they do reveal that he is a replicant for sure, I would rather them not say Ryan Gosling is also a replicant. I want something different out of it. Like, yeah. Like, it would just be too similar. But the last thing that I'll pose that is kind of like, it's, it's like, I hate that he did it because it's like, I like that he left it up to interpretation, but there is an interview where Ridley Scott says that he's a replicant. Says that he is. Yes. Huh? Well, that'll be interesting to see that whole, because they're going to have to answer how he's able to live because there's, he's, if he's, if we're to believe he's the, uh, like the other replicants, he shouldn't be able to live, you know, until 2049. I saw a theory uh, online recently that um, the reason that Gosling is after him, the reason that he wants to answer, ask him questions is because he's like this special model that had, that lived longer than he should have. Not, not necessarily than he should have, but he may have been engineered after the Nexus 6 in order to be like this replicant that lived longer than four years. And like, that's why he's there. Like they talk about like the key to this is this and your story and all this stuff. So that's just, and, and that was something that when I read it, I was like, I hope that they go in that direction if they are going to reveal that he's a replicant. But like I said, at the end of the day, it's kind of cheating to be like the director said this. Like, I don't like that. He did that, like I said, because I like the mystery that was there. And like, he could just be fucking saying whatever he wants, you know? Well, and, you know, they can notoriously lie about these things. <laughs> yeah. To, to maintain maintain some sort of mystery for their movies. 
uh, yeah, I'll be. That's something that's going to be very interesting to see in the new movie for sure. I'm, I'm looking forward to having that answered. Okay, so I just have a couple more questions before we before we finish up here. Um, I was wondering which Deckard you enjoyed more. Did you like film or book Deckard more? Oh yeah, uh, I yeah, because there, there there's a there book Deckard is more of an everyman. Um, he's a married man. He does have that uh, romantic relationship, but. He's less of a loner. Um, movie Deckard is a lot more of the kind of hard-boiled detective type. Um, I think I got to give it to Movie Deckard, ultimately. Uh, I think it's close, but I think it's because I never felt like I knew Deckard in the, in the book as intimately as I like to know characters when I'm reading about them. Whereas... So so that because of that, the book character couldn't elevate in a way that sometimes they do in other in other novels. I tend to agree with you. I mean, I, I really like the book, but it just didn't have it, it. He didn't seem nearly it just felt more like this was a snapshot rather than us really getting this whole character fleshed out and like his arc and all of this. I mean, we do get an arc, but it's more of just like it's like this is a snapshot of this guy on this day when he has to take out all these replicants. And this is more of just like getting into like the the minutia of these different little things like the social things that are going on harrison ford can't can't be understated the effect that he has on this character right like you immediately feel like you know him you know he's just got this charisma and he, he and that i think really elevates the character in a way that you know you just don't get in the book all right, I guess that's uh, that's it for this movie. I, I did want to invite you to, if you're interested in hearing about the three short films that were made, we'll do a quick discussion, just a few minutes, I think, about them at the end of the intro, at the outro music. Yeah, the three short films are just in in anticipation of the film uh, Blade Runner twenty forty nine that we're going to see later on this week, and it kind of just gives like pref- like kind of context of what's going on. Yeah, it fills in some some spaces in between, and it's um, they're all available on YouTube. You can go watch them right now. If you want to pause and like go watch them and then come back, you can do that. Um, yeah, I think you should. I think they're interesting. And I think it's worth worth checking out. So we just want to say thank you again to Audible. Um, if you guys wanted to get that thirty day free trial and that one free credit for a book, you can use audibletrial.com forward slash ink to film. Yeah, and uh, follow us on social media: Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. We're Ink to Film on all of them. We have a website, inktofilm.com. Uh, come say hi. Come send us an email to inktofilm at gmail.com if you'd like to get some feedback. Tell us how you liked the episode. Talk about upcoming projects. Um, if you wanted to get your thoughts in real quick for the new movie before we go see it, make sure to get those to this ASAP because we'll be seeing that soon. But yeah, it, the best way you can, if you are liking this show, the best way... The number one thing you can do to support us is to subscribe and give us a review on whatever uh, whatever service you use. Those two things would help us to grow this podcast, which is our number one goal. And we wanted to thank Ross Bugden for the use of our intro and outro music. All right, that's it. I'm Luke. And I'm James. Thanks for tuning in, guys. Time to die.
So first up, we got the 2022 uh, Blackout short that uh, was... Do you have his name? Uh, the the creator of Cowboy Bebop did? Yeah, Shinichiro Watanabe. Thank you. Uh, yeah, it, this was... I thought this was my favorite of the three. Uh, the His vision was really cool. It, it was very reminiscent of of Cowboy Bebop, which is an anime I'm a fan of. Uh, it was a lot of fun that he brought to, uh, a lot of those same visual flares from the original movie. It was I don't know I thought it was really cool. Trixie, the character in uh, the female replicant, reminded me a lot of Pris. Um, she's very acrobatic. There's a lot of cool action. We see them. Uh, they're, they're on a mission to create this blackout. And, and they end up succeeding. She gets killed though, and we get another. I wanted to point out we saw that we see White Dove again, so it's a, another callback to the film, right? I don't know. What did you think of this one? I I totally agree with you. It's my favorite of the three. Um, I love Shinichiro Watanabe. He Cowboy Bebop is one of, easily one of my favorite anime. The guy is just a genius. He's he's also done Samurai Champloo and Space Dandy. Like he's he he just puts out quality content. And this was like he said that he's always loved Blade Runner and this was like his love letter to Blade Runner. It was also, it was in anime. So it was just, they could do some things that they couldn't normally do with a, you know, practical live action. It was amazing how much I felt like these characters were fully realized and interesting in such a short amount of time. Like it, it's, it was, it was really well done. And then the, the blackout sequence was incredible. Uh, you know, we've seen the lights wink out and having these, cars smashing through buildings and smashing through windows like these flying cars that are falling um and you see all these explosions and just the chaos that it creates i i mean i thought it was incredible and and that's basically the end of it right we see that the these these uh replicants caused this blackout which is now a really important event yeah in 2022 so it's 20 this is like 20 years before the the following film that's coming up here soon and i yeah this was this was by far my favorite and they were able to do so many things that would have cost so much with cg yeah so we can jump right into the next one 2036 um we we were introduced to a character named wallace played by jared leto and he's this blind creator type who seems very philosophical and this is him meeting with some people to discuss legislation about him wanting to create more replicants and it seems like since the blackout has happened there's been a lot of laws implemented against it and uh, this is him kind of flexing on them and showing his power. And he has the uh, replicant he has with him uh, kill himself um, or choose to kill himself, importantly. Because he says, you can either kill me or kill yourself. And the, 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 to prove loyalty, um, kills himself. Uh, what, what was your take on this one? I thought this was really cool. I like the fact that they did three of these at three completely separate times. It puts it in perspective where we're at where we were and like why the things have led into 2049 as they are this and is 2036 i don't know if i said that yeah 2036 so this is some years after the blackout when they when the uh replicants revolted and caused that blackout that affected everybody and then this is him showing like i have perfected the model i have made it so that they will they would rather kill themselves than to kill me um I, what was your take on jared leto's character so i feel like jared Jared Leto gets a bad rap sometimes for certain things, like especially recently. Like I think he's a great actor. Um, he he goes a little far sometimes. Like I've heard that on set, he chose to always have his contacts. He had contacts that would make him blind, 
and on set he would always have them in so he would have somebody come and pick him up from his apartment and already had them in so he was on set had to be guided around and i can understand why that could be seen as aggravating but he's just trying to get into the role and and do what he needs to do and i I I think daniel day lewis is lauded for that sort of thing all the time i mean so yeah for whatever reason it's just different in this in the situation for people like i just see people hating on him a lot and i think he's had some great roles and he's a good actor and this one seems i'm actually really excited for this one i mean i know that he had he had issues with the joker but it's like you can forgive somebody for for a role that they had one time and it was kind of a, a sticky situation with studio input and a lot of other things going on with that film suicide squad i agree i think a lot of the hate has come to a head because of the joker and him trying to put this new spin on a beloved, you know, beloved character that everybody fell in love with Heath Ledger, Heath Ledger's origin, and then hated this new one, right? And I don't think it's warranted. I think, I think uh, Leto is a very, he, he's a fine actor who can, who can be very good in certain roles. I thought he commanded the scene here. I think this whole short was a great introduction to this character, and I'm really excited to see it. Um... I, I think it's unfortunate that this news came out that um, that he wasn't the top choice for, to play this character. Uh, did you hear about this? Uh, yeah, I did actually. Yeah, so originally uh, originally David Bowie was the uh, uh, the top choice to play this character, and it would have been. I mean, I love David Bowie. It would have been really interesting to see him. He's a very he's an odd person. He was an odd person, and he would bring this angle to the character that would be really intriguing but i hope that that doesn't somehow affect people's you know what i mean like view of of jared leto's portrayal i have a feeling that it it honestly hasn't even broken that wide that it it was supposed to be bowie like it would have been great to have bowie i mean i'll take bowie in anything and he's he's always great but he i mean he unfortunately passed away and i think jared leto is he's definitely got an interesting style to his acting and he's not going to be bland. So, I mean, that's always something you can say as long as he takes it to a level and like immerses himself in a character, like he, he, some say to a fault does. I just think that like, you can't, you just can't hang these things over these actors just because like he wasn't the first choice. Hopefully people, people don't really mind. Yeah. People fall on different sides of the fence. And I, and I understand that character, like people like actors can do, can do well without being so method. But I'm the kind of person who thinks when I hear these stories about Daniel Day-Lewis, like, I think it's pretty cool. And I, I, I admire, I admire um, an actor who can really, who, who, who is willing to commit so much to a role. And, and if that's what works for them and they can get an incredible performance out of it, then more power to them. I just, yeah, I hate the argument when people say like, oh, like, if you, if you're method acting, you're not acting anymore. Like you're just doing it to yourself. So you just like, and like, that's not it. That's, that's not ridiculous. A, yeah. It's come on. It's like, I understand what the people are trying to say there, but like, let the people do whatever they need to do to get into character, to become this person. That's exactly what you're doing. And a lot of times the actors have more backstory with these characters than the, the people who see them on screen ever, ever get. So it's like, mm. they have so much to unpack and to, to, to kind of get into. Yeah. And I'm looking, I'm looking forward to hearing this character wax philosophical about replicants and talk about the firmament and all that stuff that he was doing in this short. Uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, let's get into the next one, uh, which is 2048, which is one year before this, this new movie. 
and we are introduced to, introduced to the Batista character. He seems to be this kind of bookworm type. He's he's very big and imposing, but he's you know he's softened by his glasses and his thoughtful nature. We see him interacting with this uh, child and talking about a book called The Power and the Glory, which um, I looked up and it's this old paperback um, novel that was kind of about God and the nature of life. And this, uh, I can't remember the exact description, but it seems thematic. And I thought maybe this is a reference also to the, do you remember the paperback discussion from the novel where the, these paperbacks were coming back into fashion? Yeah. Um, and then, uh, yeah, and then these uh, thugs try and uh, basically try and rob this this uh, woman and her child, and he steps in and hulks out on them and just 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 like kills a bunch of them and you know explosion of violence. And then we see him immediately regret it and feel like like not regret it, but like realize that he's kind of outed himself as being a replicant and being violent. And everyone's staring at him like he's a monster, and then he kind of flees the scene. What did you take? On, what were your takeaways on this one? I mean, I really liked the scene. I think Dave Bautista is going to show up a lot uh, from here on out. I think he's got decent range. Like, I think he's he's like, yeah, he's this like big. He could play a lot of roles, even though he's like just normally cast as like this giant guy. Um, mm-hmm. I re- I enjoyed it. I thought the fighting was awesome. Um, yeah. I mean, just w- super well choreographed. So I'm excited for any of that that goes on in the film. Uh, I, what did you feel see i was a little bit i because i don't know anything about 2049 really like other than like a few things that you've seen in the trailers that kind of thing i don't know that i was 100 percent sure that dave Bautista was a was a replicant before this so how did you feel about getting that like confirmed before we even see the movie i had had that that i had had that given away at some point um i think one of the trailers i think gives it away because okay. he, go, he goes and talks to him and then like they get in a fight and I think it's given away that he is a replicant. Um, so whatever for whatever reason, somewhere along the way, I had already learned that. So I was not upset to hear have it confirmed in this short. Um, but yeah, I I I I, th- I thought it was it was a fun look into this world. It's, this is one of the shortest ones. Interesting, well choreographed, like you said. It makes me excited to see the movie. Ultimately, and that's yeah, job you know, mission accomplished. <laughs> yeah, it was fun to be one year out from what we're going to be seeing. So it's like we're seeing yeah. that's that's the lives that they're living now. What we saw on the street there. Um, one thing that yeah. I did want to mention was, um, do you know who directed the other two that weren't Watanabe? I didn't write down his name, but I did. It's like Luke. It's Luke something. It's Luke Scott. It's it's uh, Ridley Scott's son. I didn't make that connection. Yeah. Oh, it's his son. How about that? Isn't that fun? Thought that was a yeah, cool that is fact. that's interesting. How about that? All right, uh, let's uh, let's call it here then, and we will uh, talk to you guys again after we've seen twenty forty nine. Yeah, we'll see you next week.